All right. Uh, we will be once again for uh, the last week, at least directly, in the text of 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 8 to 15. Uh, the goal this week will be to try to wrap up some of what we've introduced, try to put a couple of the pieces together, and then really deal with the uh, why behind Paul's reasoning. Uh, what is the reason he gives us for these various commands and restrictions uh, in the text? And uh, obviously, as we're studying 1 Timothy, these verses, will be, we'll have to allude back to them as we continue to study the text, but at least directly, this will be our last swath at them uh, with, with a sole focus uh, tonight. So I'll be reading, uh, in this case, uh, this is the uh, New Revised Standard Version for this week. Uh, so I've tried to give you a v- good variety of translations as we've been uh, going throughout this study. And I'll be reading uh, from verse 8 all the way through to the end of chapter 2, verse 15. So here he goes. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no women to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. So uh, this is the text of 1 Timothy 2, this time out of the uh, NRSV translation. But uh, you'll notice, although there is variance between the translations, the broad brushstrokes of what's going on is relatively easy to follow. Uh, Paul first commands men certain, let's say, restrictions and Uh, qualifications for how they conduct themselves in worship. Then he turns his attention to women. Then he turns his attention to how women ought to engage in the learning process. And then he says, here are certain prohibitions on women teaching and having authority over men. And then he goes for his reasoning behind that that prohibition at the end. Um, And that's found in verse 13, 14, and 15. And this leads us to a question in the text. And you can kind of, you can raise this question. We've already raised it, but Um, How much of this is cultural and how much of this is creational? So how much of the argument that Paul's laid out here is rooted in the culture of the day or let's say the culture in first century Ephesus and let's say those particular considerations and and expectations or how much of his argument is rooted and transferable to today because of creation? So this is what we're going to kind of deal with tonight. And so the prohibition for his teaching, the the prohibition for why he says women can't teach or have authority is is rooted in uh, his reasoning given to us is found in that transitional word in verse 13, 4. He's saying, these are the reasons why I've kind of outlined these details. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly where the four starts. So it could be this whole discussion from verse 8 all the way through uh, verse 12 that he's giving these reasons. Um, and now he's going to give kind of the creational rooting for observing these various practices. But here are his reasons, okay? First reason is because of creation. And we would say this is, his reason is from pre-fall creation. So when he says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, he's now talking about a context in the Garden of Eden before the fall, so sin has not been introduced into the world. And he says, it's actually that men are different from the beginning, And that's not a bad thing that Christians should shy away from. In fact, um, if you'll turn with me to Genesis 1 uh, and 2, actually, 
uh, those opening chapters. One of the things that uh, obviously we've, we've been here a lot lately uh, as a church, just dealing with, um, you know, recently our discipleship night on gender roles a couple of months ago, where we kind of talked through some of these issues. But in Genesis uh, chapter 1, we get the creation account of humans. And then in chapter 2, that creation account is kind of further zoomed in and and dialed in. But in chapter 1, verse 27, you'll notice this equality that men and women have before God and also the diversity that they have in their creational uniqueness. So I'm again reading out of the NRSV. Verse 27 reads, So God created humankind in his own image. That's the unity that they have, the equality they have, both bearing the image. In the image of God, he created them, unity. Male and female, he created them. So they have a diversity and a unity in their creation. So then here's the question. How much of these conducts that men and women are to have and observe in the church is rooted in their unity and in their diversity? So in their unity, they are both disciples. They both can be saved. They can both uh, receive the gospel, receive the Great Commission, and propagate that through discipleship. In terms of diversity, though, there are some pieces which ought to be observed, and that's kind of what Paul is drawing out when he says, for it was Adam who was formed first and then Eve. Now, that's not clear in the Genesis 1 text, that you'd have to look at Genesis 2 to see that. And in Genesis 2, uh, the text kind of zooms in a little bit more, and it, it tells us that first, God actually creates Adam in the garden. And, uh, and this is in verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded him, you may eat freely of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day of you eat of it, you shall die. Now this is, remember, given uniquely to Adam, and Eve is not yet on the scene here. And actually, Eve doesn't come on the scene until verse 22, after God has put Adam to sleep, chapter 2, verse 22 of Genesis. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So Eve is created after Adam. And the implication that Paul's drawing is, therefore, there's a difference between what men and women have and how they function. And that's not something we should shy away from. That's something we should actually embrace as part of a creational beauty that God has in in his created world. So reason one why men and women should operate differently within the church, not not in totally different spheres where there's no overlap, right, because they're both image bearers, but in certain instances why they should operate differently is because of this kind of creational rooting of the argument, creation before the fall. That's verse 13. Uh, and then in, uh, now we're back again in First uh, Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 14, the argument is from the fall itself. So first his reason is from creation, God created it this way. And then let's say reason 2, or maybe like reason A, B, or reason 1, you know, B, part 2, is because of the fall and how that fall actually went down. So he points out, in the moment of the fall, Not that Adam didn't sin, but if you zoom into how the fall went down, it's actually not Adam who was deceived, not at first, right? For Adam was not deceived first, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, some of your translations might actually put that interpretive word in first, um, because Adam obviously was deceived in the fall, right? He he obviously was, uh, he did eat of the fruit, and hence in Adam all sinned and died. But the point he's, he's making here is that not, not only is this, let's say, difference rooted in God's initial good creation, but pay attention to what happens when his good creation goes wrong. And we observe this in the gender roles night. When Genesis 3 happens, you'll notice what the serpent does. He goes not to Adam to try to 
deceive Adam. He goes to the woman, subverting the male who's supposed to be guarding and protecting and keeping Eve, the Adam who's been given the command to not eat of any of the trees. He goes to the woman instead around the man's protective authority, and he deceives her, leading her astray. And then, you know, the, the punchline of that text is that Adam was there the whole time, allowing that whole thing to go down. Adam not stepping in, not, not, not preventing his wife from, from sinning, not protecting her, simply abdicating his role and responsibility. And so Paul's reasoning is twofold here in the text of First Timothy. Not only was Adam formed first, so it's in God's good creation, but remember in the fall, what happened was men and women uh, traded places in their roles, where the woman became a, a head but not a good head, and the husband became a helper but not a good helper, right? They, they swapped places. And so not only is it because of God's creation, but also remember Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so lest we be tempted to take Paul's commands here and say, yes, 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 but that's Paul in first century Rome, patriarchal culture, we can kind of ignore all the rest of this stuff that he's got going on. He's saying these reasons that I have for saying men and women are different and should function differently. This is not rooted in my first century uh, worldview. It's rooted in my biblical worldview. It's rooted in my Christian worldview. To, to be someone who says, actually, God created this world, and God tells us how the world goes wrong, which is when men uh, don't do what they were assigned to do and try to do other tasks, and women uh, take the place of what men were supposed to do. And this is probably a warning to us who, who often look at these uh, distinctions that Paul puts here, and we say that's trivial and cultural in the first century. And we don't seriously take the creational relationship of these commands. And this then leads us to uh, maybe the question of culture and creation a little bit more uniquely. Um, some scholars have proposed a reconstruction of the context in Ephesus where it goes something like this. The women were either part of some temple worship cult, and that is why Paul says women can't teach because you don't want to confuse the church with this kind of temple worship cult. So women shouldn't be in those teaching authority positions. That's why the men should teach. It's unique to Ephesus. But the problem is when Paul says why he's giving these prohibitions, he doesn't say because of the Athenian cult that's present in your midst. He says, because of God's creation and because of the fall. Similarly, uh, reconstructions have been proposed because while well, the women in the first century, they weren't taught, they weren't instructed. So maybe a second generation of Christian disciples uh, who were women could have been in teaching and leadership roles within the church. Um, but in the, at least as Paul's writing, they don't have the learning and instruction and theological understanding to be able to refute false teaching and therefore they shouldn't hold these positions. The problem also with that is because, well, in verse 13, when Paul says, here are my reasons for giving these prohibitions, he doesn't say, because the women haven't learned yet, you know, they don't know theology well enough. He says, because of creation, because of the fall. So on Paul's own terms, his own logic, he's, he's kind of giving us a peek into why he says these things. And he doesn't root them in culture, and he doesn't root them in certain contextual limitations in the first century world. He roots them in a, a Christian worldview of how the world was formed and how God made things to be. So creation order is, let's say, the root of Paul's argument here. And because Paul tells us these arguments, uh, we should let Paul's arguments stand on their own two feet. And if you let Paul argue for himself, uh, you're kind of left with one of two choices. Either, either you know, Paul said these things, but he's, you know, he's a man in the first century. He's He's got a limited outlook on life, and so he's struggling with his own worldview, and it's, it's kind of coming out here. Um, or you'd have to say, Paul's onto something that might make me uncomfortable in, in the, the modern world, 
but that doesn't mean I can try to twist Paul's words to make them any different than, than what they are. I, feel, I fear that one of the dangers of uh, a lot of learning and scholarship today is the danger of reconstructing and defending Paul uh, when Paul makes his reasons pretty clear as to why he kind of lays these things out the way he does. So uh, now we have to, let's say, ask the question, how seriously should we take the creation argument that Paul makes here about the creation and the fall? And there's at least two texts that I think are, are relevant for this. You don't need to turn to both of them, but um, one of them is in Matthew 19 when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him about divorce. And they say, you know, what should we think about marriage? And Jesus' reason for why marriage should be practiced in a certain way is because from the beginning God made it so with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so we might say, well, you know, maybe is Jesus saying because of the creation order, therefore marriage is this abiding thing that God has given to humans for all time. And it's uniquely male and female that can be married together. And we would say, yes, that's not a first century cultural thing. That's not something that, you know, today we can, knowing what we know about uh, LGBT stuff and all that things, that we can now redefine marriage differently. He's saying marriage is defined because of how God defined it in creation. It's an abiding practice. Similarly, the other, the other time this kind of creation argument is used, these are not exhaustive, by the way, but the other time that I think is relevant for our discussion is in the 1 Corinthians text in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, again, like this 1 Timothy text, there's a lot going on in 1 Corinthians 11. But in 1 Corinthians 11, the argument goes something like, there should be head coverings and this observance of male-female differences in, in the worship. Uh, and then what's the reasoning for it? Well, because... Uh, the head of every uh, the head of every man the head of every woman is man and the head of every man is Christ and the head of Christ is is God. There's this kind of creational ordering to things that inform Paul's reasons for head coverings. So now here's the here's the question we have to wrestle with. If the principle of his reasoning is because of creation, then we have to ask the question: How do we take his principle and apply it today in our culture? We have to do a little bit of cultural translation, right? Because in the first century, when Paul says, teach and exercise authority, uh, that means something in the first century context that it doesn't always mean when we take those same words today and say, teaching and exercising authority. For instance, um, in in the context here in 1 Timothy, the, the context is clearly worship within the church. So this is not saying women can't teach high school age men in the context of a school system, right? Uh, women can teach and exercise authority over men in that context uh, because it's not the church gathering worship context, right? And the, the Christians would have known that there are certain limitations to his, his prohibition. But we have to do some cultural translation because, well, I kind of took the issue to you last week a little bit. When we say teach, what exactly do we mean by teach? And where exactly does teaching and exercise authority, exercising authority happen in the church? If you're in the underground church in China, and you are gathering not on a Sunday, but on some middle of the weekday, uh, in the middle of the night, and you're you know, reading uh, under the cover of night scriptures and you know, quietly whispering and exhorting one another to truth, the question is, where is the teaching authority happening there? They don't, you know, they don't gather in worship buildings on a Sunday in public because they, they simply are not allowed to. And yet, there's elder preaching teaching authority happening in that church. And so if you're a, a Chinese Christian, how you honor this text in your culture might look different than if you're a Western Christian operating in a Western framework. However, we do live in a, a Western context, so let me try to translate a little bit of the cultural translation piece. When Timothy is, is told that he should not put women in the responsibility of teaching and exercising authority over men, part of this prohibition is protective for the women and 
uh, laying a heavy burden on Timothy. Remember, Paul later in the letter has to tell Timothy, Timothy, you are to preach the word in season and out of season, dealing with false teachers, punishing wrongdoers. You are the one who's responsible for doing all that stuff. Don't pawn that job off to women in your church to make them carry the heavy load that you have been tasked with by God. Similarly, we might say, well, how did Adam go wrong? It's not that Adam was, you know, was supposed to just not take Eve's input at all, but Adam pawned off the responsibility that he had to guard and protect his wife, and he punted that to Eve and said, you bear this burden, you bear the load, such that when God comes and says, what has gone wrong here, Adam says, it's her fault. So he's punted his authority and responsibility and put that burden on someone who wasn't assigned the burden. And much of what's going on here might not be, uh, might not be anything other than Paul saying, hey, Timothy, you've got some awesome women in your context. Don't make them bear the burden that is yours to bear. Don't have them doing this teaching, exercising authority stuff. You have to deal with the false teachers. It's not their job. You have to be the one who rebukes them and refutes their, their nonsense. Okay. That's at least part of what I think is going on here. Timothy has a burden and a responsibility that he's to exercise in the church. And then we can say, well, how does that culturally translate to us today? I think this teaching and exercising authority is not exclusively but dominantly exercised in the Western church uh, through a a high and a right view of preaching the word uh, through the church on Sunday and actually really any time the word is preached in in the body of the church. It's not quite easy to define in other contexts and gatherings, but in the Western church, we dominantly understand the Sunday worship gathering as when the word is preached and proclaimed, when worship is, when the saints gather for worship. And that doesn't mean that women couldn't, a woman couldn't get up and offer a word of encouragement or even a word of thanksgiving or even a testimony. But there is a time in the worship context when it becomes clear that a transition has happened, where now it is not uh, encouragement being offered, now it is authoritative practice and doctrine being laid down from the pulpit to the people of God. So what, he's, what Paul's saying here does not mean a woman could never utter a word from a stage on a Sunday or from a pulpit on a Sunday. Uh, it doesn't mean a woman couldn't give announcements or, or even like sing songs of praise to God from, from the front. But what it does mean is in your context when the preaching and teaching authority is happening, Timothy, that is your burden to bear as the pastor of the church. And we might say that that translates pretty well today to what we would say rightly understand in our culture. Now, that does not mean in every cultural context it's going to look the exact same, but every culture's Christians are responsible to honor this command within their cultural context. It's a little bit of what I think Paul's getting after when he says when women pray and prophesy, they're to do so with their head covered and men can do so with their head uncovered. There's a little bit of a genderedness and a cultural uh, contemporaneousness that happens in, in these various practices. So those are things to consider that even if we all agree on the principle of the matter, that, okay, we believe what Paul's saying here, we believe it's rooted in creation, there is a little bit of cultural translation that still needs to happen between the first century world and the 21st century world. And the 21st century world in America versus the 21st century world in the Middle East or in China or in Africa. And even in those broad areas that I've just mentioned, there's various regions and cultures within those groups that you might translate these practices differently. But the principle is what I'm trying to get at here. Paul's principle is clear. And now I want to deal with the last verse, the one I've been, uh, well, pushing off until now. Uh, Verse 15, uh, in the the NRSV, it says it this way, yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith, love, holiness, and with modesty. Now I'm going to say something that uh, you can, if if it doesn't make sense to you, just forget I said it, but... Um, 
There's no object for the verb here. So translators have to figure out what is, what is Paul getting at when he says saved through childbearing? Who is saved through childbearing? Most likely we can take the object from the last sentence, the woman. And then the question is, is it single or plural? Is it women will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in uh, faith, love, and holiness with modesty? Or is it woman, singular, she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith, love, and holiness with modesty? You notice the singular to plural switch? Some of your translations might not have that singular to plural switch. Some of them might be plural the whole way through. Pay attention to that. That doesn't mean that someone's messing with your Bible. That's the hard work of translation to figure out the differences between these things. So there's at least three things that could be going on. I'll offer all three of them. Um, and they actually don't massively impact the interpretation of these verses. Um, what's not being said here, let me, let me say this first. What all translators agree on, what's not being said here is that uh, there's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the bearing of children if you're a woman, right? That's not what's going on here in the text. He's not talking about justification proper. So here's the three options. Option one, when he says uh, the woman will be saved through childbearing or she will be saved through childbearing, maybe he's referring to Eve, the one he just said was deceived at the fall. And he has in mind Genesis uh, 3, where God says, and through the seed of the woman, the serpent will be crushed. So the woman actually receives her redemption after she falls through the bearing of children, the bearing of seed until the coming of Christ, right? Her seed who is the one who redeems and saves. That's option one. Option two, it's not a singular referring to Eve, she, but it's a plural referring to women's day. Women will be saved through childbearing provided they continue in faith, love, holiness, and with modesty. And that is to say, well, if women aren't the uh, teaching authority in the church, in what sense do they, is their dignity respected and honored in the gathered congregation? And part of Paul's answer is their dignity is saved, redeemed, their, their part in the gathered assembly is, is rescued uh, by means of the fact that they have an, a monopoly on the children that are had and raised, such that they have an influence and a, and a huge influence on the body simply by the fact that God has said, even though men are to exercise the teaching authority in the church, women are to exercise the child-rearing authority in the church, if you like. They have this kind of niche pocket that they're responsible for. And that is, let's say, supported and it's honored in 2 Timothy where Paul makes reference to Timothy's grandmother and mother and their influence on his life leading him to faith. So women do, uh, it's not that women have no authority in the church if they can't get up and preach on a Sunday. Uh, just look around at churches today. Women have an authority in the church even if they don't preach on a Sunday simply by the fact that they raise children, they network well together, and they, they, they shepherd the flock uh, in a sense from their kind of ground level grassroots movement. So there's this kind of like co-laboring uh, in that sense. That's option two. By the way, these aren't in like, you know, proper order. I'm just kind of giving you them in the order I wrote them down. And then option three, um, there's this idea of what's called uh, a synecdote. That's a uh, funny, fancy English way of saying you use a part to refer to the whole. So when he says a woman is saved through childbearing, that's a synecdote, meaning he's, he's saying Here's one way that a woman can exercise godliness. And then he expands by referring to the whole, provided they continue in faith, love, holiness, and with modesty. So, yes, women were deceived. They shouldn't teach and exercise authority. But their salvation is, is actually had by walking in godliness. And it kind of echoes the thing that was said earlier in uh, verse 11, or sorry, verse uh, 10. Uh, 
as is proper for women who profess reverence for God, they are to exercise good works. Right? So he's, he's echoing that thing and saying, women are saved in the assembly. Women are justified, saved, saved proper, um, provided they continue in faith, love, holiness, and with modesty. And he uses a, a reference to that whole part of a godly life lived out by referring to childbearing, which is one aspect of what it means to be a godly woman. It's a part which refers to the whole. So here are the three options. Um, None of those mean that you're only a, a true Christian woman if you can have physical offspring. That's not what these verses are getting after. Paul is using a generalization to refer to women in general. And it's a fair generalization because this is generally true about women. They have been tasked with this responsibility of, of bearing children. It does not mean that someone is, is less of a woman if they can't have children or if they don't have children. So let's put all these things together uh, and then whatever is, is left in the weeds uh, we can try to clean up during discussion. So, from verse 8 through verse 15, uh, Paul is laying out, we would say, gendered differences in the gathered worship service, which you'll notice doesn't stop in verse 15, but actually continues into chapter 3 as he begins to expand on, okay, here are the principal functional ways that men and women are different in worship. And how does that play out in, let's say, the ecclesiastical structuring of the church? It's a fancy way of saying how the church is ordered and organized so that it is guarded and, and kept. And so he's gonna go on to talk about elders, and that's gonna be rooted in his discussion on how men and women are different. He's gonna go on to talk about deacons, that's gonna be rooted in his discussion on how men and women are different. This is the precursor, the preamble to his argument about, well, even later in uh, 1 Timothy, uh, when he says, hey, the widows among you, you should care for them, uh, and, and women struggle with gossip, and so don't, don't let the women be gossips. And the men, they're going to be lazy, so don't let them be lazy, right? He, he, he's introducing gender differences, and then he's going to later exhort Timothy on the basis of those principles down the road practically. So the whole of Paul's letter from this point forward will be flavored in some way, not just by a view of refuting the false teachers, but also by an understanding of how creation operates in today. Uh, that's one way of saying that men and women still are different, uh, as much as in the West we would like to pretend that they're not. Men and women still do function differently, struggle with different sins, and, and how they operate within the church is not just true with how they operate in the gathered worship service, but how do you care for them? How do you love them well? How do you disciple one another well, knowing these differences exist? And part of this, you know, for Timothy, if he's a young pastor, it would be good for him to know these differences as, as he lives out his pastoral ministry. So, so this, this argument is, is in part wrapping up in verse 15, but it's really, it's really not. It's really just going to kind of keep spouting off for the rest of First uh, Timothy. With that, let me close in a word of prayer and we can get into discussion. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word, uh, all of it, every aspect and part, um, particularly the parts that edify us and, and build us up and encourage us. Uh, Lord, we know that your word is true and that you are good. And between those two realities, we confess that uh, your word is good and life-giving to us and then we pray for help in understanding it so that we can understand and see exactly how it is good and life-giving to us. We pray these in your name. Amen.